Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Gut Instinct, research updates bringing you the latest research in gastroenterology and hepatology. I'm Tamsin Cargill, I'm a gastroenterology registrar in the Thames Valley interested in hepatology, viral hepatitis and vaccine development. And I'm Michael Fitzpatrick, I'm known as Fit to pretty much everyone, as well as being Tamsin's sidekick, I'm a clinical lecturer in gastroenterology in Oxford, uh, with a particular interest in GI immunology, celiac disease and nutrition. So we started this podcast um, back at the beginning of last year to kind of bring you some of the most interesting GI-related papers that have come out recently, hopefully saving you some time and assuaging your guilt for not reading enough journals. So each episode, we plan to take you through a couple of really interesting primary research papers in a bit of detail, generally one clinical and one translational with a bit of luminal and, and hepatology in there. Um, and we'll give you our take on the research and what, what we think about it. Um, there's been a bit of a hiatus since our last episode. Unfortunately, life rather got in the way of things um, last year. But we are back uh, for our New Year's resolution in 2022 for more regular uh, podcasts uh, and possibly not taking ourselves quite so seriously. Clearly, there are lots of great papers coming out every month. So in addition, we're going to give you a rapid fire rundown of what else is out there in the gastro world in our five in five section, where we'll try and give you the key points of five papers in five minutes. Now, it shouldn't need to be said, but disclaimer alert, clearly nothing on this podcast constitutes medical advice. If you're a patient, you could consult your medical practitioner. Uh, for doctors, I'm sure you wouldn't base everything that you do in clinical practice based on what some guys told you on the internet. Please do tell us what you think of this podcast. Write us a lovely review on whatever platform you're streaming this through. Please connect with us via Twitter at GI Update. Um, we're both on Twitter as well. Um, or email us at gutinstinctpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Right. Um, I think it's my turn to start this week. So these are these are papers, I think all of these papers are ones from uh, early 2021. And so they're all um, maybe not quite as, as fresh as we normally like them. But this one, I think, is a cracker and is um, tackling a really tricky and contentious issue about diets for weight loss. And in particular, comparing low-fat and plant-based diets like vegan diets compared to low-carb, animal-based, keto or carnivore diets. And this particular area is one of great conflict, particularly on social media, where the sort of devotees of these different dietary camps uh, take a rather sort of cult-like attitude to things. Uh, and it can all get quite, quite unpleasant. But... I would say this is probably one of the key clinical scientific questions of our time because obesity is a huge international problem with massive implications. And while there are exciting drug treatments like semaglutide that we've discussed before and a whole range of highly efficacious uh, bariatric surgical options for those with morbid obesity, understanding how diet can be used to control weight is clearly uh, hugely important. 
So this paper was out in Nature Medicine in early 2021. 20, um, it's um, published by Kevin Hall's lab um, and, and colleagues. Um, and it's entitled The, uh, the Effect of a Plant-Based Low-Fat Diet Versus an Animal-Based Ketogenic Diet on Ad Libidum Energy Intake. I always love a little bit of Latin in a title. I'm more used to hearing the, the phrase ad libidum in a um, in a mouse experiment, where it means that you you give give the mouse as much chow as they like, um, and uh, this is this is the human equivalent of of, of that. Um, so Kevin Hall is based at the NIH in Bethesda, where he's one of the senior investigators studying nutrition and metabolism. And I didn't know this, but the uh, the hospital where they work, Bethesda, is the largest hospital in the world which is dedicated purely to clinical research. And it sounds absolutely incredible. They've got a, effectively a 200-patient hospital wow. just for residential clinical studies. So this huge resource, and that's where, uh, that's where he works. So the, the premise of this study is two competing models of obesity and, and the drivers for sort of excess calorie intake. And the reason those, those models are important are that they uh, suggest that different diets will be effective, really about excluding fat or carbohydrate in them. So the first is called the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. And this says that eating high glycemic carbohydrates results in elevated postprandial insulin that is then supposed to drive the accumulation of body fat and drive increased hunger and energy intake so it's the carbs what done it that drives insulin and it leads to accumulation of fat and you taking in more calories the alternative model is the passive overconsumption model which is that high energy density foods particularly like high fat foods um, have a relatively weak effect on satiety um, in proportion to their energy intake and and this is a quote from the paper modifying food hedonics in a way that supports increased intake <laughs> basically they taste bloody delicious um, so <laughs> Um, but I do like modifying food head mm. hedonics. Um, it almost sounds so, philosophical. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Um, uh, so, th so these are these two um, these two models. One of which says that we should exclude carbohydrates. The other, we should exclude energy dense foods, in particular high fat foods. Um, now, the problem with nutrition science uh, and a lot of nutrition studies is that they're often flawed in design and execution because they're often retrospective they're often based on surveys and people are very bad at recalling retrospectively what they've actually eaten when they are interventional they are often done in a, in a way that sort of uh, often has poor adherence to the diet there's often a lack of detail in what's what's measured um, and it makes it really challenging to uh, interpret individual trial results and generalise them uh, to, to the population. So a good, good example is even in um, high quality randomised controlled trials, we often get contra contradictory or unclear results. So two that I wanted to mention in the past. So one was um, the, the direct study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, about 13 or 14 years ago now. And 
that showed that some low carbohydrate and, and Mediterranean diets were more effective at uh, than low fat diet for weight loss. Uh, after two years of follow-up, albeit with a pretty small difference, so about two kilos after two years follow-up. But then another randomized controlled trial called the Diet Fits trial, again of low-fat versus low-carb diet, showed no difference at all in weight loss between these two strategies after a year. Both of them did lose weight. And so one of the one of the criticisms of these those particular studies is that the diets weren't strict enough. So often the the followers of these particular camps will say that um, that these are not good trials for testing these que these questions and these diets because people weren't excluding enough of the problematic macronutrients. So for instance, in these studies of the low carb arms in these studies were generally consuming about 30% of their calories from carbohydrates which sounds like a lot, but the average American diet is around 50 to 60% carbohydrates. So they were cutting their carbs quite a lot. And so the question is, is there some kind of non-linear effect of like excluding something like carbohydrate where, you know, going from 50 or 60% down to 30% doesn't do very much, but maybe going further matters. So that's kind of the background for this study. So this study sought to look at the physiology that occurs and the, and the metabolic changes that occur um, on changing to one of these low carb or um, low fat diets um, in some, some real detail. Um, and the study design was effectively a, random, uh, a randomized crossover design between a low carbohydrate and a low fat diet. But they did it at this facility, the NIH facility at Bethesda and effectively it was a four week long all expenses paid full board um, holiday a little bit like Club Med um, possibly without the alcohol uh, it's kind of like the lockdown dream it's basically like being on furlough and not having to cook so um, uh, they managed to recruit 20 people to this diet um, uh, to this uh, to this study um, and I think I think they were a sensible group to look at these were young generally healthy people they don't have diabetes and like like many in the, in Western Europe and America they were a bit chubby their BMI was 27 uh, and a mix of mix of men and women um, the I think that the design of the study sounds really good First off, they weren't told what the aims of the study were. They were told that this wasn't a weight loss study. They were told not to try and change their weight. They were just told we're studying the effect of carbohydrates and fats on the body. They deliberately didn't show them any of their results, like their weight or any of their other measurements. And they even specified that they wore loose fitting clothing. So I'm imagining these 20 people hanging out in a flat with in scrubs or something like that. Um, you know, some, some unglamorous clothing so they don't feel too concerned about their body weight. Um, and then they were given, uh, just like the mice, ad libidum food. So they had three meals a day, snacks and water. Um, and I think I think they were offered something like 4,000 calories a day. So they were they had as much as they could possibly want. And the low carb arm was a proper low carb arm. So 10% carbohydrate, 76% fat and 14% protein. And 80% of that was from animal products. And the low fat arm was 10% fat, 75% carb 
and 14% protein. And that was a vegan or plant-based diet. Importantly, both of them, this was all unprocessed food and they had loads of access to non-starchy vegetables. So, you know, salads and lots of like vegetable side dishes and, and, and stuff like that. So I think the results of this are a lovely triumph of physiology and common sense over all of the the sort of slightly cult-like nutritional hype that one gets on one's, uh, one's Instagram feed. So the results are, I think, interesting and the physiology is, in this paper is, is really cool for those interested in nutrition. So first off, the intake. So this is the total calorific intake for the two groups. The low fat group took in less calories, quite a lot less calories over the study. So about 700 calories a day lower in the low fat group. So a, a reasonably big difference. Interestingly, in the second week, that difference between low carb and low fat seems to have kind of waned. And it may be that um, people sort of acclimatize to the low carb diet and then start reducing their intake over time. But every single participant, all 20 of them, had less intake in, their, in the low-fat arm than they did in the low-carb arm. And there was no difference in their ratings of, of the palatability of the food. But interestingly, both groups lost weight. And actually, it's the low-carb group that lost the most, but that was probably fat-free uh, mass change, as in loss of water and glycogen, from kind of going into a ketotic state and using up their, their glycogen stores. Also interestingly, the resting uh, and sleeping energy expenditure of those in the low carb group was higher. So they were expending more, expending more calories, expending more energy, even though they were taking in more energy as well. So that sort of balances things out. Um, there are they described the um, the physiological changes of going onto these diets really nicely, and they are exactly what you'd predict from physiology and common sense. But it's really nice to have them uh, demonstrated in this in this way. So in the low carb group, people went into a mild ketotic state. They had uh, um, detectable urinary and capillary ketones. They had higher urea and creatinine levels, higher ammonia levels, and in the low fat group. They had higher C-peptide concentrations, higher insulin levels, higher postprandial glucose, and, and higher continuous interstitial glucose monitoring as well. So these are, you know, the kind of the physiological changes you'd expect. What's, you can then, I guess, debate about what the implications of those are. Um, and both harms, you could certainly make a case for, uh, for them being good. From a, from a general health point of view and uh, make a case that there are some like concerning features. So in the low low carb group, um, you've got benefits for in terms of your glucose and insulin controls. They were, the, those, those were better, but they had higher uh, triglycerides and free fatty acids, and that's associated in some studies with cardiovascular risk. Whereas in the low fat group, we've got higher continuous glucose monitoring levels and that has been associated in some studies with coronary artery disease so um, it may be that these two dietary strategies can both be effective but potentially we should tailor this a little bit 
based on things like the presence or absence of diabetes and, and, and so on. One thing that strikes me is in reality, a lot of people don't stick to either of these diets and it would have been really interesting to have an arm where the diet was mixed to see what effect that had. But What anyway. sort of alternate alternating between the dietary strategies? Or... Well, so you've obviously got a very low carb and then a very low fat, whereas you could have had another arm where it was more like a, re- a real diet, whatever a real diet is. So slightly... The American more, diet. The American diet, slightly higher levels of carbohydrates and slightly higher levels of fat. Um, Spot on. You know what? I think that would have been really interesting. And... Um, I'll 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 mention why in a sec, um, because I think it's relevant to uh, the fact that about about these two models of obesity and the mm. fact that this study kind of doesn't support either of them. So if you remember at the beginning, there were two strategies. I, I the two two um uh, two systems, two sort of theories of obesity. Uh, so one model was the passive overconsumption model. So those high nut- uh, those high energy density foods which result in excess energy intake and weight gain so we'd predict the, you know that low carb diet was 76% fat but they didn't gain body fat mm. in fact they lost weight overall mm. and they lost some body fat so that challenges that passive overconsumption model similarly the carbohydrate insulin model would predict and these people who were eating you know 80% carbs um and who had increased postprandial insulin and postprandial sugars would gain weight, but they didn't. They lost weight um, and they lost body fat. So despite that, um, they didn't gain weight. So neither of these models are in a short-term study supported by this. And this, I I think, just shows that you know, that uh, the devotees of these simplistic diets are kind of missing a trick here because the regulation of energy intake is more complex than these straightforward uh, these straightforward models would suggest. So much more complex and probably changes over time as well. Um, over the long term, maybe the body adapts and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because we don't know what, you know, what actually happens after six months or a year or five years yeah yeah and what happens at different times you know different different times of life um and you know the effects the effects that um age and activity and so on do here but i think what was really interesting is these people were allowed to eat whatever they like they were probably sitting around pretty bored and I would have predicted that both of them would have gained weight. Mm, yeah. Um, if you describe that, being locked in a facility with as much food as you like, um, being <laughs> yeah. cooked for you. I mean, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure I would gain weight. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, they didn't. So w- what was the difference? And I, I think um, this was actually, this is a point that was made by um, uh, Rohin Francis, who's um, on, on uh, YouTube as Medlife Crisis. He did a video about this this paper as well. And he made the point that that um, they would. This was all, you know, pre- freshly prepared food with loads of leafy greens. There was no processed food in it at all. Um, and maybe the real outcome of this is that actually having a diet, whether you choose one extreme or the other of the the kind of vegan versus keto argument, that's full of unprocessed food. Um, 
actually results in short-term weight loss mm. um and those those are the um that's maybe the, maybe the, the takeaway. takeaway from this yeah yeah and that's the bit where i totally agree with you that if you had a third arm of people who you know you don't have to go crazy they don't just have to have you know mcdonald's all day long but you know <laughs> who, who had a diet that let's be honest most of most of the uk and america have that contains a significant amount of um processed food um, it would be interesting to compare that to these to these diets. Yeah, no, it would be, and and it's actually just such an interesting paper because it makes you think about these things and how much we don't know still about the things we all do every day, which is eating. Yeah, no, we really don't, and I think it's um I think it's a really interesting area to study, and you know, just massive kudos to the the authors of this this study because. You know, if you look at the paper, the detail of all of the stuff that they measured and that they recorded is 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 fantastic. And aside from the fact that it was only four weeks long, which to be fair is about as long as you could probably lock anyone in Bethesda for. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, aside from that, there's really very little to criticise in this in this paper. It's you know, it's just it's really beautifully done. Uh, and um, is, a, is a really fascinating insight into these metabolic implications of, of, of uh, popular Instagram diets. Okay, so um, I've got two hepatology papers this time. Both of them are from uh, March 2021 as well. Um, and they both link together in terms of their topic. So I thought that I'd present them both at the same time. So there were two hepatology trials. Um, they were both published in the March edition of the New England Journal of Medicine last year. And the first trial is entitled A Randomised Trial of Albumin Infusions in Hospitalised Patients with Cirrhosis, otherwise known as the ATIRE trial. And this was led um, from uh, the Royal Free Hospital uh, UCL in London by Louise China and Alistair O'Brien. So um, the aim of this trial was to assess whether the regular administration of human albumin solution intravenously was associated with a reduction in three outcomes, um, nosocomial infection, kidney dysfunction or death in patients with decompensated liver cirrhosis that were hospitalised with a low serum albumin. So the background to this is um, that for, for a long time, it has been hypothesized that albumin might be beneficial in patients with decompensated cirrhosis. Um, Preclinical studies in which albumin administration has been associated with a reduction in systemic inflammation. And albumin is already got an evidence base um, for the treatment of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis where it is associated with a reduced incidence of kidney dysfunction and death. And it has also been trialled in outpatients previously with cirrhosis and uncomplicated ascites, but um, these trials have had conflicting results. So one randomised trial, um, which was an open label trial called ANSWER, which was published in The Lancet in 2018, and that randomised 440 patients to once weekly albumin versus standard care. And that found um, an association between the administration of albumin and a reduction in mortality at 18 months follow-up. However, another smaller randomized trial, but this one was blinded, of um, 
albumin in, in addition to an alpha agonist drug every two weeks versus a placebo found no difference in mortality after one year. And these are all in outpatients with decompensated cirrhosis. So as well as these conflicting results in um, human clinical trials, no previous trials have assessed the effect of albumin on infection rates, renal function or mortality in hospitalized patients. So that was what this trial set out to address. So um, they recruited patients admitted to hospital in the United Kingdom with an acute decompensation of liver cirrhosis and a serum albumin of under 30 grams per litre. And they enrolled them within 72 hours of their admission. And they were randomised um, with stratification of several factors. So things like the severity of their liver disease and their baseline creatinine to receiving a daily infusion of 20% human albumin solution or standard care. And albumin was administered from the day of enrolment into the trial until their serum albumin level was above 30 grams per litre. And the volume of solution administered was calculated on an individual basis. So um, they calculated this uh, using their current serum albumin level and um, their weight, I believe. Patients who were randomised to standard care were prescribed albumin as per usual clinical practice if it was indicated, so for the treatment of hepatorenal syndrome or SBP. The clinicians and the trial investigators were not blinded to the intervention received. And the primary composite endpoint was the development of infection, the development of kidney dysfunction or death in these patients between day three and day 15 of the trial or uh, the date of the discharge of the patient, whichever was first. So well, I, I always get a bit worried with composite endpoints. Um, so w what was the sort of the reasoning behind choosing a composite primary endpoints rather than just picking, you know, one of these, particularly, you know, something like something like death? Um, yeah. What's the what's the rationale between sort of lumping them together? So I, I suspect the rationale for lumping them together um, was to power the study adequately. Um, in terms of funding and time and, and things like that. But the academic rationale, I guess, um, of why this is maybe an okay thing to do to lump them all together is that obviously um, death is the worst outcome, but um, a new infection or kidney dysfunction carry a very high mortality risk if they develop in cirrhotic patients. So um, that's why they decided to put all three together, but uh, or that's um, what the authors claimed in the study. Um, Fair enough. And I, and I suppose with all trials, there's always an ideal way in which we would like to conduct them and then a real world way in, in which it is practical to do so. Yeah, these are tricky these are tricky patients to, to run, run trials run on. Trials exactly, for, um, exactly right, exactly yeah. right. And, and presumably that explains why they didn't blind uh, clinicians and investigators to the intervention received yeah, and I, so on for practicality. Exactly, I, I, presume, I presume that's exactly the case. Um, so the other thing about the end point was they did choose a short timescale in which to assess the primary outcome. And the reasoning for this was initially um, after recruitment and starting the albumin if the patient was randomised to that arm they reasoned that the administration would not have an effect within the first day of treatment um, essentially until 
the serum albumin had actually improved. So they gave it time to work. And uh, they um, followed up to 15 days. Uh, so day 15 of admission or discharge, whichever came first, because you know they were aiming to just see uh, what effect albumin had on the composite endpoint in the short term rather than in the longer term. Um, they did define infection in quite a reasonable way because obviously that's slightly subjective, but uh, it was defined by the patient's attending clinician and then confirmed by a blinded physician panel, which I think is completely fair enough um, in practical sense and makes it a bit more applicable to the real world. And kidney dysfunction was um, defined by a crea- a, an increase in creatinine of over 50% on baseline or an increase by 26 millimoles per litre um, or 0.3 milligrams per deciliter in 48 hours. So did it work, Tamsin? In short, no. But it was a great trial. So 777 patients were randomised, which I think is a, is a brilliant effort for, um, as we said, a very difficult patient group to run a trial on um, in the hospitalised setting. Um, so the baseline characteristics were similar across both groups, which um, indicates that the randomization was was good. Um, it's worth saying that in this group of patients, alcohol was the etiology of liver disease in the majority, which reflects the local etiology of, of liver disease in the United Kingdom. And approximately two thirds in each group were admitted to hospital due to worsening of their ascites, and the remainder were admitted due to either worsening or new encephalopathy or a varicel bleed. So there was no difference between the albumin group and the standard care group in meeting the primary outcome, which was um, the composite outcome of the development of infection, kidney dysfunction, or death between three and 15 days after enrolment. Um, in each group, approximately 30% of patients developed one of those outcomes. Um, the time to event analysis and the subgroup analyses uh, that were run um, on the individual components of the composite outcome also showed no significant differences between groups, um, although I don't remember whether that was powered adequately to do those subgroup analyses. Um, they did follow up um, to a later stage. So at day 28, three months and six months after enrolment, there were no differences in death between the groups. Now, the next part of their findings is probably the most interesting. So they found that pulmonary edema or fluid overload was significantly increased in the albumin group. So in 380 patients randomized to albumin, there were 23 events of pulmonary edema or fluid overload compared to the standard care group, where there were eight patients in 397 patients who developed this. So although it wasn't common, it was more more common in the group that received albumin. In the discussion, they didn't feel that their findings um, of no difference between the groups were due to suboptimal albumin dosing, because they found that um, firstly, the patients that were randomised to albumin received significantly more albumin than standard care group, so 200 grams versus 20 grams, and the mean serum albumin level achieved in the patients receiving albumin was um, on target, so it increased to their target of 30 grams per litre between day three and five. So they felt that they were giving them enough albumin um, for it to have had an effect if it did have an effect. 
So in summary, the takeaway from this study is that daily albumin infusions do not improve outcomes in hospitalised patients with decompensated cirrhosis if their albumin is low. And uh, we need to be careful because there's an increased risk of pulmonary edema in these patients, although no difference in, in uh, mortality. Wow. So uh, I think, as you said, this is a really well-conducted trial. I think it shows the shows the benefit of high-quality, large, randomised controlled trials, even when they're negative. Indeed, especially when they're negative. Absolutely. Because a little bit like um, the, the Holtit trial for GI yep. bleeding, yep. which showed, you know, really definitive evidence that tranexamic acid is is not effective um in in the in the setting of gi bleeding this this says pretty clearly that outside of the specific indications of hrs or or spontaneous bacterial peritonitis we should not be giving albumin do you think are, are there any subgroups um or other uh um other indications within this population who um who who you think should should ever have albumin or where there's i guess any kind of doubt um uh, based on the results of this trial so i think what isn't clear certainly in my head and whether there's evidence for this or not i i don't know is um when a patient is intravascularly deplete because in in this trial um, the albumin was given and calculated based on their serum albumin, not whether they needed intravascular volume or not. And so in a patient where their intravascular de- deplete, I'm in clinical practice, um, crystalloid, but some people do give 5% albumin. And um, I don't know what the evidence behind that, or indeed whether there is any evidence uh, to... Uh, recommend one over the other in that situation yeah i don't i don't i don't know i can't think off the top of my head of any trials about that but i was going to say that's i think that's the only specific um indication or subgroup that i think there's still some doubt of so those who are intravascularly de- deplete or uh, and or have a acute kidney injury which doesn't meet the criteria for hrs and yes. I think they're still the patients in whom I think we worry about flooding them with crystalloid and that maybe maybe some aspect of the colloidal effective um, albumin would be good. But um, it's really helpful to know uh, that, you know, that this puts a, puts a, draws a line under the kind of any kind of routine administration mm. for, for, for these for these patients. Um, so the second trial um, is entitled telepressin plus albumin for the treatment of type 1 hepatorenal syndrome um, otherwise known as the confirmed trial Um, and this was conducted in 60 centers in the United States and Canada so this is a slightly different situation so type 1 hepatorenal syndrome just to give a bit of background um, or HRS AKI um, is acute kidney dysfunction within seven days associated with cirrhosis where the serum creatinine increases by um, approximately 26 micromoles per litre or 0.3 milligrams per deciliter within 48 hours or an increase of 1.5 times uh, from the baseline level. So it's it's a diagnosis of exclusion really. 
So um, initially, when you assess a patient with acute kidney dysfunction in the context of cirrhosis, you need to assess whether they're intravascularly deplete or not and um, attempt to expand their intravascular volume and also withdraw diuretic treatment um, and assess over the next 48 hours or so whether that improves the renal function. Um, and if that doesn't, then hepatorenal syndrome is more likely. And the pathophysiology is thought to be due to the combination of systemic inflammation and renal microcirculatory dysfunction due to splenic arterial vasodilation. So even if somebody is rehydrated, uh, despite that, they have a persistently high creatinine. So for a long time um, in the UK, well, we're very used to using albumin and terlipressin in combination for the treatment of hepatorenal syndrome. But in the United States, um, telepressin has yet to be incorporated into the clinical practice guidelines because the previous randomized trials were small. So this study aimed to assess the efficacy and safety of telepressin with albumin for the treatment of HRS in a larger randomized trial to inform um, uh, clinical practice in North America. So the uh, inclusion population were hospitalized patients with cirrhosis ascites and hepatorenal syndrome with a serum creatinine that was two times higher than baseline and at least 199 millimoles per litre. And um, patients were randomised stratified by creatinine 2 to 1 to receive 6 hourly telepressin, so QDS, um, plus albumin or placebo plus albumin for 14 days or um, until they'd had two measurements of a creatinine under 133 millimoles per litre. And the primary outcome they measured was reversal of HRS or clinical failure. And success was defined by a patient having um, two creatinins of under 1.5 milligrams per deciliter or 133 micromoles per litre, less than two hours apart, and survival without renal replacement therapy for a further 10 days. So a slightly complicated, but importantly fastidious definition. So uh, what did this study find? So uh, this randomised 300 patients and the baseline characteristics were similar between the two groups and um, alcohol was the etiology of cirrhosis in the majority of patients, so two thirds, um, and in 25% of patients, um, metabolic associated liver disease. So clinical success so reversal of HRS was achieved in a significantly higher proportion of patients that were randomised to terlipressin plus HAS than placebo plus HAS. So in the terlipressin plus um, albumin group, 32% um, had reversal of HRS, um, and that was only 17% in the placebo plus albumin group. Clinical failure rates were still high. So 60% of the terlipressin group didn't get better and 80% of the placebo group didn't um, have reversal of HRS. By 30 days, there was no significant difference in those that achieved and sustained hepatorenal syndrome. Um, mortality was similar in both groups at day 30, but during the on-treatment period, uh, nine patients in the terlipressin group, so 4%, and one patient in the placebo group, so 1%, died. The terlipressin group were more likely to have respiratory failure and die from a respiratory cause within 90 days. So while it's clear that 
those who received her oppression had uh, double uh, double the the sort of the the chance of um, HRS reversal and not needing renal replacement therapy. Those short term gains weren't really carried on till to kind of medium term outcomes. That's right. And the second thing that draws my eye is, you know, just how ineffective our treatment is of individuals with HRS. Yeah, that, it's pretty dismal. You know, we, we really, we have very little in our therapeutic armamentarium other than, you know, good, you know, good uh, kind of basic care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of generalizability, um, so... They did exclude some patients um, with large who had had a large volume paracentesis within forty eight hours before enrolment, or um, sepsis or uncontrolled bacterial infection uh, within twenty four hours of an antibiotic treatment. Um, so, I thought that might be difficult um, in terms of infection is often quite difficult to diagnose accurately in patients with cirrhosis. Um, decompensated cirrhosis particularly in the initial stages where um, it's unclear what might have precipitated the decompensation and uh, patients can often have clinically silent infection with negative blood cultures and um, certainly in the UK antibiotic treatments often given uh, even when there's no positive culture um, and that might have excluded many patients from participation if this was um, if this trial had been done in the UK. And the other thing that I thought was noticeable was um, in the European definition of acute injury, acute kidney injury associated with cirrhosis, um, the minimum serum creatinine of one nine nine micromoles per litre is higher than the accepted European de- definition. Um, so they they enrolled patients with a higher serum creatinine than we would uh, define as having HRS in Europe. Um, and further benefit may have been found if they'd included these patients as well. But I think overall, it supports the use of telepressin alongside albumin um, in HRS, um, as is uh, usual practice at the moment in the United Kingdom. So, do you know if this has changed practice in the in the US and in other countries that haven't traditionally used telepressin in this setting? I don't know actually. I should look that up and um, see whether the guidelines have changed or been rewritten since. Yeah, um, but certainly the authors were supporting its use in North America. So these are two really interesting. Although I'd argue pretty depressing uh, uh, randomised controlled trials of liver disease. And, you know, I I think it's a reflection of our kind of our our usual inpatient practice that uh, Mm. experience that this is a group of patients who um, who it's. We don't have a lot to offer them. No. Um, aside from, from, from supportive care, really good supportive care and that, um, and there's a real lack of effective therapeutic treatments for for the conditions that we've got. And even the ones that we do have, like telepressin, uh, actually the evidence base suggests they probably 
don't by themselves lead to kind of medium term or long term gains. Mm. Um, so and they only work uh, in but a, it's fantastic a, sm- to see. a small proportion of patients. Yeah, but great to see like two really good trials answering like really clinically relevant uh, questions. Awesome. So there are two papers that we've sort of kind of done in in uh, possibly excessive detail. Um, uh, and then we've got a few more that we'll pretend to do quickly, but probably not actually do quickly. I will try um, my best so to do these quickly. D- yeah. Well, do you, do you want to start with one or two? Yeah, and then I'll, okay. And then I'll take over. So uh, my number one is, uh, got a long title, Towards personalised medicine in autoimmune hepatitis, measurement of thiopurine metabolites results in higher biochemical response rates compared to standard weight-based dosing of thiopurine therapy. And the first author was Lena Kandels, and the um, senior author was Michael Hennigan, both based at King's College Hospital in London. Okay. Maybe... Maybe uh, just assume. Maybe assume that we are all. I'm not going. With, I'm um, not going to go into the detail. Uh, the metabolism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of, um, <laughs> of, of Which I'm sure we all are because we use it all in IBD yeah. lots. So um, it was a retrospective single centre case control study, and the population was patients with autoimmune hepatitis treated with azathioprine between 1999 and 2019 at King's College Hospital. So 94% received azathioprine, 6% received mycophenolate alone or in combination with other therapies. And the intervention was um, metabolite monitoring of azathioprine. So these were people that the clinician had decided to do azathioprine monitoring on. Um, And the control was um, weight-based dosing of azathioprine. Um, and that uh, there was 100, approximately just over 100 in each group. And the outcome that was measured was the maintenance of biochemical response. In this case, normalization of IgG and transaminases at six or 12 months after the metabolites were tested. And the main finding was that the patients in the group where metabolites were measured were significantly more likely to maintain biochemical response at six months follow-up compared to those without metabolite measurement. So that was 77% versus 60%. And although this is a case control study, um, we're all probably used to measuring um, azathioprine metabolites in IBD, and it's quite useful. Um, And uh, this is an interesting study uh, that we might want to use more of metabolite testing in, in the autoimmune hepatitis cohort. Yeah, it's interesting that um, I find it interesting that for different conditions, even within the same specialty, we have different um, like different approaches for how we like not just dose, but how we how how we monitor and 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 so on. It's a bit like for biologics, where gastroenterologists have, particularly from the days when infliximab was the only thing in our mm-hmm. therapeutic. Uh, therapeutic toolbox for for sort of severe IBD we um you know really look carefully at you know at the levels and how we optimize them and how we protect response and so on and that's just not been part of the culture in rheumatology where probably due to their increased op- number of options they've been you know much much happier to switch just one question on this were were there like um were the sort of the target levels for 
um, uh, for the azathioprine metabolites the same? Yeah, I think so. So, um, so basically, well, it was a yes. They they used um, a range, a normal range of the TGN of the six TGN therapeutic range between two two five and four fifty, and that was derived from an IBD population, and then they um, applied that to this group retrospectively. Yes, is the answer you were looking for. I think yes. <laughs> But I don't know what the individual... So at the time, obviously, when the clinicians were making the decision about the azathioprine to alter the levels, I don't know whether they knew what they were saying was the normal range. But they retrospectively applied a range that we normally use for the IBD population on the study cohort to see how many had subtherapeutic TGN levels. Cool. Okay, so the second one, potential effects of minimum unit pricing at local authority level on alcohol attributed harms in northwest and northeast England, a modelling study. Um, this was published by Brennan et al. Uh, from Sheffield. So uh, the aim of this study was to estimate the potential effects on mortality, hospitalisations and crime of the implementation of minimum unit pricing for alcohol at a local authority level in England, which as we all know has been done in Scotland and they used a computer modeling um, uh, strategy to do this. The data they fed into their model was obtained um, from uh, at the local level about the consumption of alcohol, local prices and various other things. So 23 upper tier local authorities in northwest England and 12 in northeast uh, England and nine government office regions um, the model was tested on and the intervention was setting a local minimum unit price, um, the best case being 50 pence per unit of alcohol. And this 50p minimum unit price for alcohol, when it had run through the model, um, was estimated to reduce annual alcohol-related deaths in the northwest region um, by 205 and hospitalizations by 5,956 so that's a 5.5 percent reduction and a reduction in crime by 2.5 percent which suggests um, that as in Scotland a minimum unit alcohol price in England particularly in areas of the country where there's a high burden of alcoholic liver disease might be very useful. So haven't they um, recently published the outcomes of the uh, minimum minimum unit pricing structure in Scotland. I'm sure I saw something on the news. Maybe, I maybe think we should they have. read a paper or we something should have and, a look. And, and talk about it. Yeah. I think they, I think they did and I think it was sometime last year. We should definitely have we should definitely have a look at uh, a look at that because I think it's a really it's a really um, interesting policy, and I think it raises. Uh, I mean, it raises a number of interesting kind of uh, you know uh, moral and ethical issues as well as um, as as well as anything else. But um, you know, the, the short answer is that if it works, then you know that's that's hugely um, hugely important um, as a as 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 one of the tools for for tackle, tackling alcohol abuse. Um, and it's great to see people looking outside of just um, direct alcohol harms and, and just looking at, for instance, like liver disease or, but, you know, violent crime, other crime, 
other other conditions you know the the, the wider impacts you know it's really important to, to consider yeah no absolutely um do you want to do a couple yeah sure I'll, I'll do um i'll do one um and and now for something completely different in a monty python-esque way so this is um this is more of a well it's a it's a sort of it's a murine study um uh so something a bit different so it's entitled an organoid based organ repurposing approach for the treatment of short bowel syndrome and it's by researchers from tokyo lead author shinya shugimoto um so uh i thought this is a really cool uh cool paper and some really interesting science albeit somewhat far from clinical practice so if uh, as way of background a significant proportion of the patients who have intestinal failure due to either a short length of uh, small bowel bowel out of continuity or like intrinsic bowel disease like Crohn's disease um, those patients re often require long-term parenteral intravenous nutrition long-term home nutrition but that comes with significant risks inconvenience and and pretty huge costs it's sort of in the region of thirty thousand pounds a year to supply parental nutrition to someone uh, if they require nursing care uh, tens of thousands of pounds more so this is an expensive inconvenient and risky intervention but it's all we have the only alternative is an intestinal transplant which can be highly effective but is a relatively relatively high risk um, transplant still um, and we've certainly got some way to go to get be better outcomes for those patients but there's a big chunk of patients uh, with intestinal failure who um, intestinal transplant is is not appropriate for so in short this paper is about developing a method which they call um, developing a small intestinalized colon basically turning the colon into an absorptive tissue a bit like a small intestine as a therapy for intestinal failure um, and, uh, and doing this in a couple of mouse models so what they did is they 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 grew up human organoids from small bowel so uh, for, for those unfamiliar with organoids this is where you get some uh, in this case uh, epithelial cells from a, a, an ileal biopsy you strip off the epithelium so you've just got the epithelial cells and there'll be some stem cells in there and if you grow them in the right um, the right sort of magic potion uh, in in the lab they will develop into these little sort of uh, these sort of spheroid kind of structures and they will often develop some of the characteristics of the epithelium from from where they've where they've come they form these these uh, these structures so what's what the researchers did is they got these human ileal organoids and they transplanted them into immunodeficient mice into their colon so basically they just instilled them into the colon after they'd stripped away the uh, colonocytes the colon epithelium and what happened is kind of fascinatingly these these organoids basically just attached themselves to the kind of denuded uh, mouse colon wall and took up residence there and they formed an epithelial layer but not only did they form an epithelial layer it was a layer that didn't look like colon it looked 
quite a lot like small bowel. So those epithelial cells um, which in, in now in this mouse colon had microvilli for absorption, they started to form what looked a little bit like villi, so these kind of pseudovillous structures. Um, the cells expressed the uh, the surface enzymes and transporters we'd, we'd, uh, we'd expect of the small bowel. So they expressed the sucrase isomaltase enzyme and also the sodium bile acid transporter IBAT. Um, and, and then they showed this, this really cool thing, which I, which I thought was, was really interesting, was that the, the colon um, uh, kind of submucosa altered in response to these human ileal epithelial cells taking up residence there. So within these kind of pseudovillous structures, we got um, what, what they saw was the development of lymphatics, like you would see in the small bowel, going up into the villous structure. And they seem to be functional in that they could measure cholesterol absorption, see cholesterol, uh, track cholesterol going into those lymphatics. And they did some interesting work to try and show how these um, how these organoids kind of took up residence and developed these these sort of villous protrusions uh, and 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 so on. Um, so this was their first bit of work in in mice, kind of sh as a proof of principle. And then they said, well, could these small intestinalized colon uh, colon um, be used? as a treatment for short bowel syndrome. And so they went into rats and did some pretty crazy surgery, which I think is well worth briefly running through because it involves, aside other things, an interdental Panasonic toothbrush, a which toothbrush. is rarely, rarely something that you uh, read about <laughs> in, in, in nature. So um, they went into rats, um, as far as I can work out, because rats are big, bigger and easier to do the surgery. Um, uh, in particular to do the surgery to remove um, uh, the whole colon. So what they did is they went into the rat, they dissected out four centimetres of colon, but they left its vasculature there. So effectively, they've just got a tube of colon. They then basically wash out the colon with, with kind of warmed EDTA, which is, you know, sort of strips off the epithelium of the colon. They then scrubbed the inside of the colon with a Panasonic interdental toothbrush. Um, and then they instilled in these human organoids. And then what they did is they anastomosed the two ends of this colon to the skin. So effectively a stoma at each end. So effectively you've just got a loop of colon uh, and that enabled them. And then they left it for a couple of weeks for those organoids to take up, you know, set up shop um, and form this small intestinalized colon. God. So that was just operation number one. Operation number two was they effectively just removed the whole small bowel of the rat. They did a jejunoileal reception. And then they put back in that small intestinalized colon and they compared it to just putting back the normal mouse colon, sorry, the normal rat colon, but, but not but not not with this uh, not with the uh, treatment with the organoids. Um, again, they demonstrate that you know that the the, uh, the epithelial cells take up shot, they express the right enzymes, they're doing doing the right things. But they also show that actually it seemed to work at least for some of these poor rats. So basically, all the rats that just had their small bowel removed and their colon left all died mm. um, within ten days. 
the ones who had the small intestinalized colon put in, some of them lost weight and died, some of them lost weight and then they started gaining weight again and they survived and they were long-term survivors. Well, as, as long-term as a rat study ever is. Um, and it, they found that those, those long-time survivors were the ones who had the best engraftment of those organoids. Um, so they've kind of proved the principle that you can turn a colon that really just absorbs electrolytes and water and, and some short-chain fatty acids, and you can basically, by just switching out the epithelial cells, you can turn it into an absorbative bit of gut like the small bowel that can function and keep keep at least some rats alive till the end of the experiment. So I think this is a really, really cool idea, albeit a little a little way away from uh, from being applied in clinical practice. Um, a very cool idea that you could manipulate tissues to function in different ways to solve like real yeah, world clinical. Really problems. interesting. So we'll uh, yeah. Super cool. We'll wait for that to uh, translate into humans with the toothbrush. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to need a, a big, bigger brush. Big toothbrush. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the the last one we're going to do, we're going to do four in five today because we're massively overrunning. Um, is one that's actually not really about gastroenterology at all, but I think it's a really cool little article which I think everybody should have a quick glance at. It's in Clinical Medicine, which is the Royal College of Physicians in-house journal. Uh, and it was uh, it's called, I can assure you that there is nothing wrong with your kidney. This is an article from a GP called Tamara Keith. And this is an article about her experience as a patient when she was a medical student and junior doctor with an, at that point, undiagnosed abdominal pain syndrome. So she was diagnosed with recurrent culture negative pyelonephritis. And after six years, finally was given a diagnosis. The diagnosis was found to be nutcracker syndrome, which was a new one to me, which is where the left renal vein is compressed, sandwiched between the aorta and SMA. And effectively, the, the kidney has periods of ischemia and intense uh, intense loin pain um but uh, I, I, but often these 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 patients are, are not diagnosed and are labeled as as patients who have a functional disorder and so um i'm just gonna I, I, she describes really really well the challenges of having a of having this functional disorder about the journey to the final diagnosis and and her kind of observations and, and thoughts of, of how it's relevant to kind of all doctors. Um, I just wanted to read out one paragraph from, from this. For six years, my pain had been discredited, my agenda questioned, my honesty mistrusted by many in the renal team, yet they continued to treat me as suffering from re recurrent pyelonephritis. Fortunately, I had a renal physician and a radiologist who believed that my symptoms were real and were keen to find out the cause. However, there was disagreement within the team thwarting progress. I had been labelled. I was functional. I was the attention-seeking medic, the annoying expert patient. This was a real and general, genuine problem. 
I had concluded the diagnosis was nutcracker syndrome long before many of them had even heard of it. I knew more about this condition than any of them. But consultants do not take kindly to being taught by medical students. And uh, it was in a, it's a really good, actually, edition of clinical medicine, all about functional disorders in different organ systems. Um, but I think I think there's definitely some things that it made me think about, about the cohort of patients um, that we have in gastroenterology who have, you know, complex functional pain syndromes um, and, you know, some thoughts about how we kind of manage manage their care and how we you know best best kind of understand them and and help them thank you that's that's really interesting i'll need to go back to clinical medicine and uh, read the article thank you fitz so that concludes um our episode three of gut instinct um we hope you enjoyed it please uh, get in touch with us on twitter or via email if you have any comments um, uh, or any reflections on anything that we've discussed. And uh, hopefully we'll be back soon for another episode. 